Hi, this is Stacey Talamaris, and you're listening to IP Friday's podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 111 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Stacy Calamaras, founding partner of Calamaras Law Office, and my co-host Ken Suzanne talks with her about the international filing strategy for trademarks and trademark prosecution. And also Nicolas Rivera of Barnes & Thornburg has some information on the ShopSafe Act of 2020. Before we jump into all of that, uh, I want to tell you that the German Constitutional Court has upheld the UPC complaint. That means the unified patent system is on hold at the moment. Reason being um, that the grounds stated that the par German parliament did not have the necessary majority to pass the necessary legislation for the ratification. So we are all waiting for a decision of the parliament whether there will be a new vote on the UPC agreement, the, the legislation necessary for the UPC agreement for the ratification. I'm now actually curious whether there is the political will to proceed with the unified patent system. Uh, as you might know, the UK has dropped out of the UPC system. So let's see whether Germany wants to ratify the UPC agreement or not. Nicolas Rivera of Barnes Thornburg has compiled information on the ShopSafe Act of 2020. According to the United States Census Bureau, 2019 e-commerce sales in the United States reached around 600 billion US dollars, which had increased from 2018 by around 15%. Within these sales, some reports estimate that nearly one quarter of US consumers have knowingly purchased a counterfeit good online. In March, Representative Jerry Nadler sponsored and introduced the Bipartisan ShopSafe Act of 2020 in the House of Representatives. The bill gives best practice guidelines that e-commerce platforms must follow to not be found contributorily liable for counterfeit goods that infringe on trademarks. With widespread e-commerce availability, combating counterfeit sales has become increasingly difficult for government agencies. Further, counterfeit product detection has become increasingly difficult for the average consumer when sellers on trusted platforms like Amazon and eBay can sponsor their counterfeit products and have them show at the top of search results. Some of these counterfeit goods sold on e-commerce platforms may have lethal consequences. According to a December 2019 study published by CNN Business, a $99 counterfeit knockoff of a $299 car seat did not meet government safety regulations. When testing the counterfeit car seat, it broke into 30 pieces during a 30 mph car crash. 
In the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak, e-commerce platforms such as Amazon and Etsy have faced a significant increase in counterfeit masks, which, if used, may cause harm to the person using the mask as well as those surrounding the counterfeit mask user. Chinese officials have confiscated over 31 million counterfeit face masks, Interpol has seized over 34,000 counterfeit face masks and it is currently unknown how many counterfeit face masks have been sold and seized in the United States. In the interest of public safety and to protect established brands from having their trademarks tarnished by counterfeit goods, the ShopSafe Act of 2020 creates best practice guidelines for e-commerce retailers when screening and vetting sellers and goods penalizing repeated offenders in ensuring that consumers have the best and most accurate information available to them when they make online purchases. The act focuses mainly on goods that have an impact on health and safety. In return for following these guidelines, online platforms will be immunized from contributory liability for trademark infringement. Now let's jump into the interview with Stacy Calamaras. Our guest today on IP Fridays is Stacy Calamaras. Stacy is the founding partner of Calamaris Law Office, located in Chicago, Illinois. She has spent nearly 30 years working for some of the world's most beloved brands in more than 150 countries and for clients in diverse industries. Before going to law school, she was a brand manager and advertising director in the consumer packaged goods industry. Stacy has been recognized by her peers as a super lawyer for her outstanding knowledge and services in intellectual property law. Since starting her law firm, she has educated over 1,400 lawyers on three continents on various trademark topics, including IP law for the corporate lawyer, anti-counterfeiting strategies, how to conduct a trademark search, and how to be an effective practitioner at the USPTO. Ms. Calamaris holds a BA from the University of Vermont, an MBA from DePaul University, and a JD from the John Marshall Law School. Welcome, Stacy, to IP Fridays. Thanks so much, Ken. I'm I'm pleased to be with you. Excellent, Stacy. Uh, before we get into our discussion on intellectual property issues, uh, can you tell our listeners what led you to attend law school and become an attorney? Um, sure. So I actually had always wanted to be an attorney, but I had no idea what intellectual property law was. I mm -hmm. just saw prosecutors and defense attorneys on TV. So I thought when I was young, I wanted to be a prosecutor. And that's what I set out to be when I was um, in high school and college. But I deferred going to law school and instead entered the workforce and um, was very excited to learn more about marketing and promotion and sales. And so that's how I started my career. And when I landed at the NutraSuite company, I started working with attorneys who do what I do now, protecting brands. And I was really taken with that. So I sort of archived that in the back of my head and enjoyed a very um, fulfilling career in marketing and promotions. Um, but then I reached a point in my career where uh, there's sort of this natural tension between marketing and the legal team. And I always seem to be siding with legal. And so in my early 30s, when I was sort of thinking more about the future of my career and whether I wanted to stay and continue to grow in marketing, I decided at that point to reapply to law school with the intent of leveraging my years of experience in marketing and my MBA to go to law school to become a brand protection lawyer. So that's what I did in my mid thirties. Mm -hmm. Now, some of our loss, some of our listeners are law students. Is there any guidance you okay. can offer to them if they are interested in pursuing a career in IP law? 
So for me, I feel very strongly about working before you seek higher education. I had about five years of experience working before I sought my MBA, and I found it very, very helpful to me. Um, the things that I learned in my MBA, I got to take back with me each and every day in my job, and I found that really, really helpful. And I understand that many MBA programs actually prefer that their students have working experience. And for me, going back, obviously, I don't recommend that everyone go to law school in their mid-30s. For me, that was valuable. But I think it's really valuable that people get some work experience. I think it makes you a better student. I think it makes you better able to understand the material. And I think you're able to add more value to your clients. For me, my point of differentiation is that I'm able to understand my client's business issues. What we do as IP attorneys is, you know, we, we don't um, deal with issues of life and death. We handle business issues for our clients. Our clients come to us with a business issue, and they rely on our legal expertise to solve that. And so by understanding how the business runs and their business issues, Obviously, my area of expertise as a business person was consumer packaged goods, but I had responsibility for a P&L, a profit and loss statement. I ran a business. I had direct reports, so I can relate to my entrepreneur clients or the large businesses and brands that I represented. So it has served me very, very well. That was the right choice for me, but I think working in any capacity, just understanding how business works, especially for IP, because it is such an important asset to the business, I, I think it's invaluable. Well, good. Let's uh, jump right into our topic for today, which is uh, filing strategies and trademark prosecution for trademarks around the world through our global system. Uh, let's talk about uh, some of the considerations trademark owners should consider uh, before undertaking an international filing strategy. Right. So I think um, being strategic uh, is the most important thing. Actually, having a strategy first is important and not just jumping in. So I think some of the things that a company of any size can take into consideration is what is your budget? And why is it that you want to expand internationally? Um, so if you are, for instance, a U.S. company, a European company, it doesn't really matter. I think some of the same issues come up. But what is your budget? What are some of the countries that you're interested in expanding into? And what's your why? So are you concerned um, about cyber squatters? Um, are you concerned about counter counterfeiters? Does your brand receive a lot of press? What is it that, you, that you're going to be concerned about as you start to expand on the global stage? Because of that, all of those considerations should be taken into your strategy as you expand internationally. And then you can make an informed decision about which is the best international filing strategy for you. Okay, and for those trademark owners who wish to expand internationally, whether they be here in the U.S. or in other parts around the world, what options do they have? So generally, there's two, there's two different ways that they can expand. They can do a direct national filing strategy. And what I mean by that is so if they're, if they're already in their home country then, and they want to expand, say, to China, Japan, um, so it's, let's say they're an EU company, they want to expand to China, Japan, the US and Canada, they can file individual uh, applications in those countries. 
or they can go through the Madrid Protocol, which is sort of a central repository through the World Intellectual Property Organization. And each of those have benefits and and um, have pros and cons to them. And again, it all goes back to the strategy. People think that, that the Madrid Protocol is their only option, and um, oftentimes it, it can be more cost-effective, but there are drawbacks to the Madrid Protocol a- as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can, we, can talk, we can talk more about that. But again, understanding your particular strategy and what it is that you want to accomplish for your brand, it isn't the it isn't the only option. And depending on where you wish to expand to and where you're coming from, may inform the decision that's best for your company. Now, with respect to you know costs, filing fees, and legal fees yep. for trademark owners who are cost conscious, isn't the Madrid Protocol the best option for international expansion? So I'm going to give the classic legal answer here, Um, maybe, but it depends. Mm -hmm. And the reason it depends is it depends on so many factors. Um, There are limitations to the Madrid protocol, depending on where you're coming from. So for instance, for U.S. home-based filers, so if, if I'm representing a U.S company and they wish to expand, I hardly ever recommend Madrid Protocol as the best option. But similarly, we get such a huge influx here into the United States of foreign companies utilizing the Madrid Protocol because it's, it's much more utilized in, in, other com- in other countries as opposed to the U.S. And it isn't always the best option because here in the U.S., we attach so many restrictions, according to our rules of practice at the USPTO, against Madrid applications that we don't attach to to nationally filed applications. And I think sometimes people aren't aware of that, and certainly foreign counsel, as they're advising their clients, aren't aware of those restrictions. Mm-hmm. So it really, again, depends. And one of the biggest issues that that I see very early in my career, I was handed a a portfolio. For a second year attorney, it was a large portfolio. It was about 25 marks in 15 countries. And the trademark owner had gone through the Madrid protocol. That had already occurred when I inherited the portfolio. And we spent a fortune on hiring local counsel in each one of those jurisdictions. And the client was angry. And why was he angry? Because he was told that if he went through Madrid protocol, that was it. It was one-stop shop, it was one set of fees, and he would be one and done. No one told him that there was a risk that his applications could be refused in each of those countries, and he may need to then hire local counsel. And in fact, that's often what happens, that the fees up front seem very attractive and lower cost, but then later they're refused when, they, when they're sent to each of the countries to be examined. It's the same issue as when you apply nationally. The advantage to going nationally is when you work with local counsel at that national, international level, they can tell you at the outset what some of the issues might be, and you can course correct when you file to maybe head off some of those issues. You might 
still get a refusal. But when you're filing centrally, you have no option to make changes because you have to sort of file exactly as your home country application is because you're extending it. Mm -hmm. So that's really the, the biggest limitation to Madrid. And I think oftentimes people are surprised that they then have to hire local counsel. They get this letter from WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, and that gives them some sort of either amendment to the goods and services or some substantive refusal. And then the trademark owner gets upset that they have to hire a local counsel. So oftentimes we see the costs mounting even when they go through Madrid. And that's often a shock to uh, trademark owners. So it's so from what I understand, your practice is usually not to use the Madrid protocol. Is that what you had said that you filed directly? I, I don't advise it for, for U.S based companies except in limited circumstances and that would be if if your um identification is extremely straightforward and simple which is rare here in the united states right because mm -hmm. our our system requires such specificity and such narrowness but if you are very simple in what you're doing say you're a restaurant and you're very clear you don't try to get overly verbose and you just apply for restaurant services, well, then it might be okay because you haven't gone in for too much. Or say you're selling some sort of a spirit and you've gone in for alcoholic beverages in class 33, parentheses, except beers, which is what's in the ID manual. The, the simpler, the better, that might be an option for you. But otherwise, I, I, I typically don't recommend it because usually our identification of goods and services you know, our, our short paragraph and we do the namely this and we have to specify that. And those are things that are going to create problems when you extend through through Madrid, in my experience. Sure. Now, one thing that we often hear about uh, with respect to international registrations is what's known as the central attack. Can you tell our listeners yeah. what is this central attack and what options are available if their registration uh, becomes uh, centrally attacked? Yeah. So again, this was something that I had learned about early, early in my career. And I think for people going through Madrid, uh, it's very important for them to understand that. So uh, an important limitation of the Madrid system. So regardless of where you're coming from, let's say you're a European company and you extend your um, application to, you know, five or six countries through the Madrid system and say you're in, um, engaged in a, in a heated opposition in Europe, your home country, um, your home territory, and that opposition ends not in your favor in, in year three, and you decide to go ahead and abandon your rights to, to that mark. It's, it becomes a house of cards. That's what the central attack system is. It says that within the first five years, if your application in your home country somehow doesn't survive or it dies. So for instance, here in the U.S., we require use in order for the registration to mature. So if for some reason you weren't able to prove use of your mark, your U.S. registration would never issue. And if you extend it based on your U.S. registration, then all the subsequent countries would be subject to central attack. It's basically a house of cards system. So all the money that you spent even though it seemed that it was efficient, all those uh, extensions, those international registrations go away. 
So I think the option is, again, understanding the strategy, going back to the first question we talked about, the budget, what you're concerned about. I probably should have said the other thing to consider is what are your long-term goals in each of those countries, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is really, really important to consider. And um, although the rest of the world, almost every other jurisdiction, there's only about three or four jurisdictions anymore that have um, common law rights, almost every other jurisdiction is a first-to-file right, it can seem very attractive to rush to do your filings in these first-to-file countries. But remember, you need money to do that, and your safeguard against the first-to-file countries is that there are still provisions for use. Again, you have to take a positive step to get them off the register, but in almost every country in the world, there is a cancellation provision for non-use. Some countries it's three years, some countries it's five years, maybe in some it's seven I'm trying to go through all the countries in in my head and remember their provisions. Mm -hmm. Um, But even in China, which is, you know, one of the biggest offenders of IP rights um, and and cyber squatting is, is you know, and trademark infringement is a huge issue there. And you have individuals hearing of an expansion, especially in the Western world, and rushing to the trademark office, an individual rushing to the trademark office to file in his or her own name. And they can get the mark. If they don't use it, you can petition to cancel them. It's not easy. I'm not trying to represent that it is. People have criticized me in CLEs I've given. I've never said it's easy, but ownership in the U.S. is is a different issue. It's a threshold issue here for us, and you have to be the rightful owner, which is not the case in other jurisdictions. But central attack is a serious issue for Madrid filings. And if you're not yet using, if you're not yet sure of your international expansion, if you have a serious competitor that you're doing battle with around the world, I wouldn't go Madrid. I do national filing to protect yourself because if you fall in your home country, you can still then have your international registration and you might execute some sort of a coexistence agreement for your home country, whereby maybe you fall off the register, but you agree you can still use, right? These are tactics we IP attorneys utilize all the time to keep the register clean as long as we can still use. There's so many other strategic considerations, um, but if you fall off the register in your home country, all of your other Madrid filings will tumble like a house of cards. So that's yes. why it's also so important to discuss these strategies with your, with your trademark counsel. And if the registration did um, was centrally attacked, what would be the uh, the steps that the trademark owner should take uh, uh, upon yeah, hearing about qu- this news? Good question. Yeah. So, and, and if it, so, if it was centrally attacked and you filed um, through Madrid, then I would shore up all of those filings with with national applications immediately. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And who would be a good candidate to take advantage of the speed and cost savings offered by a central filing system like the Madrid Protocol? What types of um, of clients would that appeal to? Yeah. So, it, from my perspective, um, from a U.S. perspective, I think it's you know the types of people we talked about: someone that has a very simple and straightforward ID yes. um, that can be extended 
throughout many different countries. And, and I think I'd have to really think about it. I think that's really true for other countries as well, because, you know, China and Japan and the Asian countries, their systems are a little bit different. And I think the more simpler the ID, the easier it's going to be for all of these different countries to, um, to examine the, uh, you know, the, the applications. Um, so that, that would be, that would be my recommendation. Um, but obviously people have to do what's best for them. And I recognize that budget is always going to be a consideration. I think that if you're thinking about utilizing the Madrid protocol, especially if you're a foreign company thinking about coming into the U S if you're represented by counsel, just have your counsel get in touch with a U.S. attorney to check it, because there are a lot of limitations, again, as we mentioned, that we impose on Madrid applications, uh, particularly for descriptive marks. Um, and so you might just want to check that to make sure that you're not going to come up against that. So, Stacy, we're nearing the end of our podcast today. How can listeners get in touch with you? So um, you can always get in touch with me via email at um, info at klolegal.com. Uh, that's also my website, klolegal.com. I have a lot of free resources on my website. Or you can um, find me on LinkedIn, Stacey Calamaris, K-A-L-A-M-A-R-A-S, or call me anytime at 708-320-2033. Thank you very much, Stacey, for spending time with us today on the IP Fridays podcast. Thanks so much, Ken. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.